All right. Good afternoon. What I want to do in our final session is introduce you to or remind you of what I believe is a neglected doctrine. And it is the doctrine of eternal rewards. And the Bible presents a picture of eternal rewards, that is, infinite treasure, grace given for finite moments spent on this earth to the glory of God. Uh, There is treasure in heaven stored up by living faithful lives here. And the reason I think this is a helpful capstone for us on this weekend is some of you in this room are empty nesters, or you are in the process of emptying the nest. Some of you are married. Some of you would like to be married. Some of you are aiming at serving the Lord untethered to marriage. Whatever the case may be, whatever the category, the theme for this weekend has been something along the lines of running hard after Christ, being the right kind of man, being the right kind of woman, whatever season in life God has you in, whatever station in life, whatever your responsibilities, and I want to fuel that. And I think the New Testament gives us fuel for that endeavor in the doctrine of rewards, eternal rewards for faithful living here. I believe this is a neglected doctrine, one, because maybe we don't read our Bibles as much as we should, though this doctrine is all over the Bible. But I think for us who love the gospel, the the gospel of God's free, unmerited grace in Jesus Christ, the gospel that says the only way you get to heaven is by abandoning works and completely and totally entrusting yourself to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Look, you only get your sins forgiven because Jesus died in your place. That's it. And simple faith in him is a matter of God's grace, not works. All of that is true. And that may cause us to have a a difficulty categorizing verses in our Bible that tell us that we are rewarded for what we do. And yet all of these things are true. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Christian, you will be rewarded for faithful living. And so we can tend to neglect this doctrine because we feel like it steps on the toes of the gospel of grace when it does no such thing. God's grace, Titus says, teaches us to deny ungodliness. Ephesians 2.10 comes right after Ephesians 2.8 and 9. You know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved. This is not of yourselves, it is a gift, it's faith alone, lest anyone boast. But then verse 10 says, God has created us in Christ Jesus to walk in the good works in which he has prepared. So God prepares good works for believers to walk in them. That is all of the package of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. It's not opposed to the gospel. And if we believe what uh, others have said well, that fervency springs from a vision of heaven's reward, then we will give ourselves over to running after Christ hard because there is great reward in doing so. And just think about the math on this. You, You may get the next six hours on this earth and that's it. You may get another six decades. The Lord knows that. But the moments you spend for his glory, for six minutes, 
or 600 years if you live before the flood or in the millennial kingdom. Whatever that time is, that time spent matters for eternity. And the math is incomparable. You, you can't actually multiply anything by a sideways eight and put it in an equation with some finite number. So whatever we do here for the glory of God, whatever season in life, if, if God has you get married or has you not get married, you need this doctrine because you need to live for him. And it matters forever. So let's dive into something of a biblical survey of the doctrine of rewards and then we'll zero in on one passage. This neglected doctrine is critical for us, and, and I think it's neglected in addition to us being biblically illiterate sometimes or thinking that it steps on the toes of grace. Sometimes I just think we're short-sighted. I'm living to solve the next crisis in life. I'm, I'm living for the next thing around the corner. I mean, if I can only get that perfect grade, then I can make that school. If I can only finish that school and get that piece of paper, I can get the perfect job. And if I only get the perfect job, then I can have the best career. And if I get the career, I can have the family and the home and the stuff. And if I do all of that well, I can retire well and I can get a Winnebago and travel the country. And there's always something around the corner that never ends. doesn't matter what age you are. If you are living for, what can I get out of this life next, right around the corner that I don't have yet, then I'll be content, then I'll serve the Lord, then, then never comes. What you have right now is right now. And listen to the words of Jesus from Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. But, command, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, when neither moth or rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I want you to disabuse yourself of the notion that storing up treasure in heaven is somehow sinfully selfish. Jesus says the opposite here. He commands you, Christian, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. It's a command. So let's, let's walk through some passages. I'm convinced that if we could catch a glimpse of the reality of reward in heaven, what it is, dispensed by God, given in exchange for temporal obediences here, if we could only see that, our lives would change forever. Think about what you would do if you had a time machine, you know, a DeLorean and a flux capacitor or whatever. Um, would you be thinking about lottery tickets? Sports gambling. Uh, what stocks would you buy? In April 2004, um, no, let's see, in July of 1985, Apple stock sold at six cents a share. In April of 2004, Apple stock sold at 41 cents a share. In April of 2020, $60 a share. And when I wrote down these notes, $171 a share. Think about that. What you seek right now, if it has eternal dividends, is way better than sports betting or the right stock pick or something along these lines. Way better than clairvoyance at stock trading or cheating at gambling. 
a life of simple faith, yielded in obedience to God for the production of spiritual fruit, gets rewarded with moth-proof, rust-proof, and theft-proof treasure. Unfading, undefiled, will never fade away. So let's listen to a few passages first. Genesis 15 God makes a promise to Abraham and says to him, your reward shall be very great. In Jeremiah 17.10, God says, I, Yahweh, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, your reward in heaven is great when you're persecuted. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And he says that over fasting and praying and giving. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, The Father will repay every man according to his deeds. In Matthew 19, Jesus says, You will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. In Matthew 19, he describes some of that reward as judging the 12 tribes of Israel, he says to his disciples. What do you mean we're going to get stuff in the next venue? You're going to be judging 12 tribes. In other words, part of the reward is increased stewardship, opportunity, and responsibility. In Matthew 19, Jesus said, You will receive many times the things you have left in order to follow him. In Matthew 20, He says, speaking of the the workers who came at different times of the day and they all got a one day's wage at the end, Jesus says, uh, they all get the same wage at the end. How, How does that factor into rewards? Here's the interesting distinction. Everybody who believes in Jesus Christ, whether you believed when you were a little kid or at the last breath of your life, you get the one denarius reward, which is the crown of life or eternal life. Sins forgiven declaration of righteousness before God, entrance into eternal joys in the presence of God unashamed. Everybody gets the same reward. And there are degrees of rewards given. Both of these things are true. Matthew 25, Jesus says, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. The same thing in Matthew 25, 23, in charge of many things. In verse 29, he says, more shall be given to some. More shall be given to some. And then Mark 10, 20, Jesus says again, come and you will have treasure in heaven. Listen to Luke 19. Jesus says, you've been faithful in a very little thing. You're to be in authority over 10 cities. And to another, he says, to five cities. You see the difference in degrees of reward in heaven. In Romans 10, here's something we learn about God and his very nature. He is abounding in riches for those who call on him. Something you need to understand about rewards in the Bible is that they are all a matter of God's generosity. Not earned out of something intrinsic in you and your abilities. If there's anything good in you, Christian, it is not of you or from you. It is from him and through him and to him. But if God sees fit to reward that which he himself produces in a believer, it is just a mark of his generosity. He is just abounding in riches. He's not stingy. Romans 14 says, We will all stand before the judgment seat of God, speaking to believers. 
1 Corinthians 3.8 says each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And then the passage we'll look at in detail, 1 Corinthians 3.10-15, says everybody has to be careful how he lives. There's gold, silver, and precious stones, and then there is wood, hay, and straw. Each man's work will be evident, and you will be rewarded according to the quality of your work. 2 Corinthians 5.10 describes the same event and says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that is the Bema seat of Christ. That is a specific end times judgment where Jesus assembles all believers and then rewards them according to their good works on the earth. And 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, They are there so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done. 1 Timothy 6, Paul speaking to rich, he says, You are storing up for yourselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future when you live faithfully with what God has given you. Hebrews 11.6 tells us God is a rewarder of those who seek him. 1 Peter 1 tells us we have an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. And then Revelation twenty two twelve, last chapter of the Bible, Jesus says, I am coming quickly, my reward is with me, to render to each man according to what he has done. Now what I have just highlighted for you is certainly not exhaustive, but I hope you get the, the flavor of this doctrine is all over the Bible. And if there's a degree to which it has been neglected in your own life, I would suggest that you are stealing from your own Christian life fuel. And this is fuel you need. A command to be fruitful and then the promise that that fruitfulness will be rewarded. And think about it. Fruitfulness for Christ here actually is a matter of joy. When you lose yourself in service to Christ... When you forget about yourself in service to others, you actually get happiness. It is when you seek to live selfishly. All the world must bow to my needs. I need what I want. You live the entitled life. Oh, I deserve fill in the blank X, Y, Z. That is when you produce profound unhappiness and discontentment in your life. Listen, if you think, okay, i got to run hard after Christ. I, I need to be the kind of man, the kind of woman uh, that, that, that I need to be so that I can get married. You've got the equation wrong. Be the kind of man you need to be for the glory of Christ and for eternal reward. Be the kind of woman you need to be for the glory of God and for eternal reward. And if God sees fit to have you find someone going the same direction, same speed, and enjoy life in a partnership and ministry together, that's great. But the reality is the fruitfulness of that and the eternal reward from that will not come from marriage solved my loneliness crisis. It will come from pursuing the Lord and seeking eternal reward at whatever season of life you're in, whatever phase of life God provides. So we need to know this. The other foundation for thinking about eternal rewards is just a consideration of the character of God. Think about just a few of God's attributes, his characteristics. We know from Scripture that God is good, that God is actually the standard of good, and everything God does is good. Uh, nothing polluted can flow from him. And the real definition of good 
is not some external definition that God has to bow to and conform to, but the real definition of good is all that God is and does, that is good, and if anything else is good, it must conform to him. What does it mean for us that God is good? It it means fundamentally, as Psalm 100 verse 5 says, Yahweh is good. It flows out in what is described here as his loving kindness being everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see that Yahweh is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And we know that everything God does is good. Psalm 119, 68, You are good and you do good, says the psalmist. Everything that is good in the universe comes from God. James 1, 17, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. And we see that God's goodness is expressed particularly to the redeemed. You know Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's really staggering to think about the, the enemies that the Christian has. And all of the enemies of the Christian life must bow and yield to the sovereign hand of God who orchestrates all of them for the good of those who love him. Psalm 84, 11 says, God does not withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly. And you might be tempted to think, oh, if I'm not getting what's good, it's because I'm not walking uprightly enough. No, this isn't a merit-based deal. Those who walk uprightly is a categorical statement for those who live by faith. And if God has not seen fit to put something in your life that you've defined as good, it means God doesn't define it as good for you right now. And you can wait on him. You can trust him. You can pursue him because he is good and he does good. And he's not stingy. He is generous. God is even generous to the unredeemed. You remember in Luke 6.35, for instance, God pours out sunshine and rain and provision to the just and the unjust alike. His goodness is so staggering it cannot be bottled up. He just loves to do what is good. He's not stingy. God is also righteous and just. That is part of his inherent goodness. All that God does is just and right. His work is perfect, says Deuteronomy 32.4. John 17, 25, Jesus says, O righteous Father, in his prayer to the Father before the disciples. That means that it is necessary, based on God's goodness, that he punish sin. Sometimes we think, well, if God were good, he would just let bygones be bygones. No, that is not the definition of good. In fact, the very fundamental nature of God as good means in the presence of recalcitrant sin, he must unleash fury. If God did not punish sin, he would cease to be good. If God did not address our unrighteous acts, he would cease to be righteous. In fact, the only way that us sinners can stand before a holy God and God maintain his own good reputation is if our sins get paid for. And the only way that our sins get paid for and we not pay for them eternally in infinite measure because they are infinite offenses against an infinitely holy being is if the infinite God-man, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, pays for them in himself. He alone can absorb infinite wrath 
so that the sinner who committed the crimes goes free while the sins committed get punished in the person of Jesus Christ. That's our only hope. Do you understand what it cost God for his goodness to not be unleashed in fury in your life, but rather in grace, mercy, pity, kindness, love for the unlovely? When we think about what we deserve versus what we get, this ought to fundamentally change everything. There's no room for complaint. There's no room for bitterness. There's no room for ingratitude. I'm alive and my sin's forgiven. I need nothing else. If the Lord never gave me another good thing in this life, I have everything because I have Christ and my sin's forgiven and I get him forever. And yet, Romans 8 tells us, God who has already done the hard thing, given us his son, how will he not graciously along with him give us all things? Again, he's not stingy. He's generous and kind. When you think about the goodness of God, the justice of God, the wrath of God, the mercy and patience of God, all of this culminates in this staggering love of God for us. When you think about the love of God, it is grounded in God's love for God, inner Trinitarian fellowship. The Father loved the Son, the Son loved the Father, the, the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. And, and that love, so bound up in Trinitarian unity and affection, overflows to his creatures. So any of us, we can say, well, we love God, but only because he loved us first. And when we rightly love others, it is because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us, Romans 5. So God loves God, out of that God loves sinners like us, and out of that we love God in return, and out of that we love one another well. Can you believe all the good gifts God has given if we just boil it down to the gospel that saved you? Anything else that God sees fit to give us, persecutions, trial, hardship, those are good gifts. Reprieve from persecutions, trials, and hardship. More good gifts. All in God's sovereign hand. And all of this goes to the glory of God. And if we follow Jonathan Edwards' definition of the glory of God, we would call it the sum total, the outshining radiance of of the sum total of all of God's attributes. Everything that God is radiating out in blinding light. To use the Old Testament description of the glory of God, that heaviness or that weightiness of God. And Christian, this is the definition of eternal life, to know him. You've been qualified by the blood of Jesus Christ to be in his presence forever. And there's more? Sounds like an infomercial. Yes, there's much more. God has seen fit, Christian, to reward your life here, lived in simple faith and obedience to him, with more treasure in heaven. It's just staggering. We think about who God is, who we are, what he's like, what we deserve, and that God would spend any time with us, put his name upon us, draw us to himself, let us be in his presence, And then say, hey, you were faithful with some little things over here. Let me give you this. We could never say, God, give me what I owe. You're obligated. 
I did this and this and this and this and this for you. Now pay up. No. We are just floored by the gracious generosity of an infinite God who gives and gives and gives and gives. It's really a staggering doctrine. Romans 14.10 and 2 Corinthians 5.10 both describe this Bema seat judgment. Bema is a Greek word. It described the raised platform with an official seated upon it. Jesus stood before Pilate's Bema seat in John 19. Paul stood before Gallio's Bema seat of the proconsul of Achaia in Acts 18. And this Bema seat judgment, and you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 3. This is the text we'll look at in a little more detail. This Bema seat judgment is different than the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20. The only people that show up at the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20 where the books are open and the names are read and all the deed, dirty deeds of humanity are read and then the people whose names not found in the book of life are thrown into the lake of fire. The only people at that judgment are the wicked dead. And then there's the Matthew 25, sheep and goats judgment. That is at the end of the tribulation period leading into the millennial kingdom where the nations are separated out between believers and unbelief, those who remained after all of God's judgments during the tribulation period. This Bema seat judgment, a different judgment than those other two, is the judgment seat for resurrected believers from the church age where God assesses what did you do, how did you do it, why did you do it for me? Let's look at this in detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll back up to verse 10. Paul writes, According to the grace of God which was given me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. Each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, so as through fire. The only people at this judgment are believers. Those whose sins have been forgiven. And it means that what is at this judgment is not an assessment of sins specifically. We know that Romans 5.1 says those who, are, who have been declared righteous by faith have peace with God. Romans 8.1 says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not an assessment of sins. And I'll put a little asterisk on that. There is... Uh, sin plays in a part of the equation here. Uh, but, the, but the reality is, this is a judgment of rewards. This is a judgment of rewards. And in the context, Paul is talking about his own apostolic ministry. Jesus Christ is the foundation stone of the church that has been being built for 21 centuries. And Jesus Christ is the only foundation that could be laid. And the apostles and the New Testament prophets were busy laying down the first floor, if you will, of this building called the church. We're about 21 stories up now. So this is the labor of the Christian life that every one of us believers continues since the apostolic age. And Paul says, be careful how you do it. Look, 
you can't lay another foundation than Jesus Christ. What happens if you're going about God's business and Jesus isn't the center, the cornerstone, the centerpiece, the purpose, the foundation, the head of the church as we talked about last night? You're working on the wrong building project. You're totally off the map. You're off the blueprint. You can't lay another foundation than the one which is laid, Jesus Christ. Now, now that you're working on the right building, each must be careful how he builds. And look what's said here. Verse 12, if any man builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, then each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, it is to be revealed with fire. What happens when you put fire to the ingredients just listed? Wood, hay, straw, they go up. I used to be terrified of this passage. Thinking, oh, I'm going to stand before Jesus and there's going to be a giant movie of all my sins. I don't know if you thought about it this way. The sins are gone. They're paid for. But there's a bunch of worthless stuff here. What is that worthless stuff? It's what has been done that is not rewardable. It's not the stuff that withstands the scrutiny of the fire of Jesus' assessment. It's how you've lived your Christian life. And we talked about this with the men this morning. The Corinthian believers were infatuated with celebrity practitioners with sophisticated, stylized, rehearsed, perfected delivery that actually undercut the simple, clear, unadorned, powerful message of Christ crucified. So think about this. You, you, you go about living the Christian life of advancing the gospel, of life in the church, of ministry, and you do so because you really like the way people will look at you if you're some big shot in the church. Maybe you like to do things that are showy, that people will notice up front. Ways to serve that get the applause of men. Listen, all of that gets burned up like straw in an inferno. And it may be very discouraging to think about as you look back on your own life now and you go, how much of my Christian life has been built up for self-aggrandizement, self-promotion, for self-anything? And this passage terrified me in one sense. What's it going to be like to stand before Christ and then, here's what I did. But you know what's true? When you get to heaven, the stuff that you did that was merely fleshy, merely temporal, storing up treasures for yourself on earth, doing things for everybody else to see rather than for the Lord, or whatever it is, all the wood, hay, straw stuff, you're not going to want that in heaven. You and I are going to be glad to see that stuff burned off. If we bring a cartload of all the things we did in this life, you and I might look at that cartload and say, wow, this is a wagon full of straw. And the wagon itself is made out of wood. And the stuff at the bottom of the wagon is more stubble. Okay, Jesus gets out the blowtorch. And the whole thing just goes, gone. And we'll say, whew. Didn't want that in here. <laughs> Those things are regrettable. And then you look at the pile down there and everything blows away like chaff and, 
and there's some gold and some precious stones. What is that? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't remember those things, Lord. And, and the Lord will say, this is Ephesians 2.10. These are the good works that I prepared in advance that you would walk in them. And you walked in them. You did these things. I'm the rewarder, each according to what he has done. And friend, you did these things. You, you were faithful with a few little things. Here's ten more. You were faithful with these little things. Here's five more. And you, you, you know what you and I ought to say in that moment? What we will probably feel compelled to say. Wait a second. Those are the things, Lord, that you produced. Those are the things you did. And, and you're going to reward me for the things that you did through me? And the answer to that from this passage is yes. Why? Because God is a generous God. And he just gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. This is why going after heavenly treasure is not a selfish ambition. Because the things that get rewarded are the things done for the glory of God, done in simple faith, a yielded life, obedience to the Lord, just doing what the Lord said. We are merely slaves. We've only done what we've asked. <laughs> and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. Here's ten more. And lest you think the, the, the rewards is a pile of gold or something like that. But look, the streets are made of gold. You're, you're not going to need Fort Knox in your backyard. Whether or not there's anything inside Fort Knox, that's debatable. I believe that the rewards given here, and we've seen some hints at this at the passages we read, are greater capacity for the enjoyment of and service to God into eternity. God's the treasure. God is the rewarder of those with yielded lives of faith to him, and he will give greater capacity for the enjoyment of knowing him and serving him forever. This is why on the one hand, Jesus can say your reward for believing me is eternal life and everybody gets the same. And more faithfulness in life, more reward. Just as there are greater and lesser degrees of punishment in hell, not everybody gets the same. There are more lashes for some and fewer lashes for others depending on what you did. God knows all things he sees all things. How does this affect your loyalties? How does this affect the way you think about your life? Think about how Christian service is to be described. Now look back at 1 Corinthians um, chapter 3. There is jealousy and strife among you. Are you not fleshly, walking like mere men? I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. What are they? Paul says, servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, God caused the growth. Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God causes the growth. The one who plants and the one who waters are one, but they will receive his own reward according to his own labor. What do we learn about serving Christ in this life? 
We are lowly servants, verse 5. We are instruments through whom others believe, verse 5. We are dependent. It is the Lord who gives the growth, verse 5. We are diverse. Paul plants Apollos waters. Not everybody's got the same stuff to do. Not everybody has the same gifting or responsibilities or opportunities. In verse 7, significantly, Paul refers to himself as nothings, nobodies. The Corinthians were infatuated with being somebodies. And Paul says we see ourselves as nobodies. And then they are unified in purpose, verse 8. They're rewarded differently, verse 8, individually, according to the standard of what they've done. They're fellow workers, according to verse 9. And, and then finally in verse 9, look at this. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. In other words, we're all owned. We're all owned by him. We belong to him. And what a great thing it is to belong to the king of the universe. Our just, righteous, holy, terrifying, awful, great big God who is kind, generous, merciful, tender-hearted, associates with the lowly, and rewards those who live for him. What is your season in life? What will you do with the season you have right now? Listen, if God gives you the next six minutes on the earth, live for him, and it will be rewarded in heaven. If God gives you six decades, maybe it's six decades of persecution. Maybe it's six decades of the, the trial of the American dream. You know the old American dream? Uh, you know, a, a wife and a car and 2.5 kids and a white picket fence and a brick house, whatever. Uh, that may be going away. That is a particular trial. That is a particular temptation to make this earth your home, which it is not. How will you do that? How will you survive that trial? The trial of the American dream. This is why persecution clarifies things. If the church is on the run, running hard after Christ, we gravitate to these passages we need all the time. Comfort, ease, a lack of trial can dull our spiritual senses. It's probably harder to pursue eternal reward when things are comfortable than when things are uncomfortable. So embrace your trials, embrace the season of life, live faithfully unto him. And our God who is good and is a rewarder of those who do good will reward you in heaven. That's the encouragement from scripture that I think applies to every one of us in our seasons. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have been so good to us. Thank you for looking upon us in our pitiable state when we were your enemies estranged from you, not good. In fact, we were your enemies. And by the gospel of your grace, you drew us to yourself in rescue. And if we had nothing but this rescue unto you, we would be eternally, blissfully wealthy. And yet you have given us so much more. Every opportunity, every comfort, every discomfort, Every blessing, every trial, they are all gifts from you for our good, even as you have promised. Let us use these things, opportunities, responsibilities, seasons of life, as a stewardship to do that which is pleasing to you and matters for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.